Facebook who are watching us live. You can't give me Earl Grey tea through the camera, but we welcome you. You are, as I say, present in, in, in spirit, but not in body. So we welcome you as well to this, and maybe you'll be watching a little bit later on via our feed on Facebook. Uh, or maybe you'll be listening to this. I know some people listen online through iTunes or through Podbean, which is available through our website at citypointchurch.ca. Uh, so that's good. We have the, the tech available to, to make that happen. So today we're continuing our series that we started a number of weeks ago. And I saw a, a couple of people have already bought the book. Uh, it's based on a book by a pastor in Canada uh, by the name of Carrie Newhoff, and the name of the book is Didn't See It Coming, and he talks about seven challenges that everybody faces at one time or another, but nobody expects, and when they come and we don't expect them, they usually lead to consequences that we didn't plan and things that happen in our lives and in the lives of those we love that we didn't plan. Uh, so we have talked about cynicism and compromise and disconnection and irrelevance and pride. Today we're going to do burnout. I've never heard a message in a church setting on the subject of burnout, uh, but I think it should be talked about a whole lot more often. Uh, the stats on, on mental health issues uh, but on, even on burnout are quite surprising. Um, quote from Dr. Allison Freeland, the associate chief at the Royal Ontario Healthcare Group and uh, a psychiatrist. She, uh, she says this, mental health professionals across the province deal with the fallout of workplace stress and burnout every day. Uh, the problem is widespread and the impact on our productivity and mental health is serious. Uh, Stats Canada says this, 20% uh, of Canadians will suffer from a mental health-related problem at some point in their lives, and almost 40% of Canadians suffer from workplace stress, inflexibility of schedule, long hours, constant connectivity, tight deadlines, lack of vacation time are cited as the main instigators of workplace stress. Uh, so this problem of burnout is not a problem that we need to ignore. It's one that we need to, to acknowledge. And the, again, these mental health professionals are facing burnout um, every day. So the, the question is, if you go to the next slide, please, uh, and the next one. And the next one. Yeah, you're tracking with me. Keep going. Yeah, so, so the question is, what do we do about it, and what really does it look like? I know an individual uh, in this church, I won't embarrass the person, but they've been through burnout two times. Um, and, they, and they told me recently, I would rather have two broken legs than go through burnout again. Um, how many of you have heard the term? Okay, most of you have, have heard it. And the ones who, who are not raising their hands, you probably don't want to raise your hand because you might have come dangerously close to it uh, or lived through it, and you may not anyone, uh, want anyone to know. Uh, I'm going to share with you, I'm going to be quite transparent with you for the next few, few moments about my own experience. Uh, it wasn't full burnout, but it was awfully close. Um, and I, and I, I do that not to be self-centered, but to, to try and, you know, lead from a, a place of vulnerability. I think church works when people are vulnerable, yes. 
And when people are honest and when people are transparent, that's when you start to see the power of the church, really, when those kinds of relationships are real. Uh, so, so I'm going to, at the risk of sounding a little silly or a little self-centered, give you my own story of burnout, what I call the 9-volt battery. Any of you ever play with a 9-volt battery before? That's the, this is kind of square, rectangle battery. Did you know that inside that battery, there, you ever cut one open? Maybe you're a kid. Any boys in the room? Boys do this sometimes. Yeah, yes. You ever cut one open? You know, there's like, I think there's six little batteries in there, what they call quadruple A batteries, which you can't really buy, but they're inside that 9-volt battery. Have you ever touched a 9-volt battery? Like the two connectors, you know, that's the one where you have to plug the two connectors in. It's always hard. You squeeze your thumb on the crazy thing to get it plugged in. You know what I'm talking about, that kind of battery. So have you ever touched one like with your fingers, both connectors like this? No? Have you ever taken one and put it on your tongue? <laughs> now I'm getting, getting some hands, right? So how did that feel when you put that 9-volt battery on your tongue? It was, you know, you're getting, uh, and there, there, are, there are reasons related to, to physics and, and electricity, that the reason why you get that jolt uh, when you put it on your tongue as opposed to, you know, just your skin. There are reasons, and you can look up those reasons, all right? But I want to use that as an analogy to tell you my, my, my story uh, of burnout a little bit. Um, I have been in, in full-time ministry for more than 17 years straight. Uh, in a number of capacities, so uh, most of you know, most of that time was in what I call big church, okay? In big church, you get, a, you get to experience a lot of things. You get to experience a lot of things in small church, okay, as well, and this is small church, relatively speaking. Um, how many of you know, just as an aside, God uses big church and God uses small church too? Yes? Did you know that uh, only about 20% of churches worldwide are big church? Most churches are small church, like around this size, uh, worldwide. So God uses both. But anyway, I've served in a number of capacities and and been, you know, have have widened my scope over the years. I've I've preached in churches uh, in British Columbia, in Ontario, in Quebec, in New Brunswick. I've done some overseas short time stuff in Haiti and. Cuba and a little farther in um, in Zambia in 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 Barcelona as a as a layman, um, and you, the more time you spend doing something, and the more consistently you do it, and the more the more you widen your scope, the more you see, yes, and the more you experience, and the longer you do it, you get these layers and layers of experiences and. You know, some of those experiences are good, and some of those experiences aren't so good. But, the, the, you know, you, the more time you spend, the more that you, you start to see things. So I can remember a period of time for about five years. It may have actually been more than five years, but it was at least five years where that 9-volt battery on the tongue experience, picture having that on your tongue for five years. Okay, that, that's kind of what it felt like. It wasn't like you could take it off. It was just there all the time. And that's as close as I can come to describing with a, with a physical illustration what, what those years were like. And I can remember years where 
you know, there was, it, it had to do with conflict. And there was one conflict after another, after another, after another. And this all had to do in, in you know, obviously a church setting. But it was one after the other, after the other. And when you thought that one was over, another one came. And then that one was over and another one came. And they all had little pieces and parts that connected them. Kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. And it was almost humorous. Because when one was over, I could tell another one had to come because it was just, that was just the nature of what was going on. I mean, it just, it was almost like a bit of a sick joke, what was happening with, with these intense, intense conflicts. Now, in, in any kind of, of um, relationship, there's always conflicts. Yes, how many of you are married or you're, you know, you have a significant other person Okay, I hope you do have conflict, because if you don't have conflict, there's a problem. That means one of you gave up a long time ago, and you just said, forget it, this one's right, I'll be wrong all the time, and I just will keep my mouth shut, and that's how I'll survive. Bad, bad idea, okay? A lot of men do that in their marriages. They just say, lights out, she's, she's right all the time, I'm wrong all the time, and I just cease to participate in any kind of conflict. Okay, that's bad way to resolve conflict. I see a lot of men smiling. Bad way to resolve it. You need, conflict is good. Um, healthy conflict is good. It's normal. But this was not normal. Okay? This was conflict that was so intense that people began to do and say things on both sides of the conflict that they could not take back. They began to do and say things that these things, okay, now this is hardball, this is conflict that you're going to affect the course of a person's life by making these decisions, by saying these things, by in some cases writing these things. You're going to, this is really serious business. And, you know, it's funny when, when people are in those kinds of conflicts, especially large groups of people, they always think they're right. And they always think in, in a church setting, they always think they're on God's side. We're right. We're doing what God wants us to do, and the other person's wrong, and, or the other group is wrong, or the other party is wrong. And everybody thinks that they're right, but you know what? In those kinds of conflicts, everyone loses and everyone is wrong. That's, that's usually what happens. Everyone, it, it eats a piece of a person, and everyone pays the price for those kinds of conflicts, which are not normal. They're so, so intense. I remember the first time I got a lawyer's letter. And it wasn't, see, in my, in my particular situation, it wasn't that I was a third party observing the conflict. I was in the conflict. Okay, so I was the person managing the conflict, which became conflict after conflict after conflict. I was in the center of all of those things. And I remember the first time I actually got a lawyer's letter from a very, very hurt and angry individual, which turned into individual after individual after individuals and all of this. But I remember the first time that I got one. And I remember how that felt. Um, If... If I were honest with you and I told you the amount of hours that I have spent with lawyers 
You say lawyers in that kind of setting? Oh, yes. The amount of time that I have spent, the amount of phone calls and meetings and sitting down with people, with lawyers present and angry people on both sides, that's when you know it's hardball. When people, like, wish the worst on somebody else, that's when you know that it's hardball. And I can remember the first time that that happened. Folks, the, the season that it was and the, that stretch of years, I say it with embarrassment. I probably worked 70 hours a week average when you're taking that kind of toxicity home and when you are when, you know, it's, it's by email, it's by phone, it's another call from another angry person, it's another email, it's another lawyer, it's another advice, okay, we got to navigate this, we got to make this decision, we got to advise this person, don't do this, do this, and you're right in the center of it, and you're forced to take a position and a side, and really, you're put into a position where I was the one who was lowering the boom on people, and that is a very, very difficult place to be. And when you're doing that 60, 70, I, honestly, I think there were some weeks where it was like 80 hours because you, it just doesn't stop. It's always, always there. And you know what began to happen is that I started to pay the price uh, and my family started to pay the price. So, you know, in terms of what I was like emotionally in that season, Wow. I mean, I look back, I was so immature emotionally, so selfish emotionally, and so like, so ajar and so off and was saying things that were so like inappropriate and out of place and just extreme childish behavior and immaturity with the people who I cared about most because of all of this, you're being pulled emotionally in two, three, four different directions. The people who are your friends now become your enemies, and it's just the conflict is just so horrific and so toxic. And I and there was there was a moment there where where Janet, my wife, she's out of the room now, but she, she and I had a conversation, many conversations, and it was excuse me, but that there. And this, what's going on here, and the way that you're, it's unacceptable. It doesn't, sorry, but it doesn't jive. And, you know, she kind of put her foot down and said, uh-uh, that's not the way that it's going to be. That is unacceptable. You need to do something about this because it's not normal. The, what, the way you're behaving is not normal. And I had to really, really swallow that, and I had to humble myself, and I had to get help. And I did. And uh, I found a Christian counselor uh, uh, at the time, Christian psychologist, and I met with this guy for the better part of two years, unraveling all of this stuff, uh, because I was, it was the nine-volt battery on the tongue for five years and maybe more. Uh, and it was, wow, what a season and what a time it was, and some of what he shared with me um, I will I will give to you today. Um, but uh, he told me, he said, well, you're not burnt out, I don't think, because people who are in burnout, full burnout, they can't function. 
um, and some of you, maybe you know what that's like. Like you can't operate, you can't do basic things. You may be, you may be stuck at home all day. You may be lying in a, in a, in, on a couch all day. Like you, even people who are in full burnout, they can't even brush their teeth in the morning. Like they're so burnt out, even basic things, going to the grocery store, checking the mail or whatever, they can't even do those kinds of things. They're, they're fried. They're completely emotionally just, there's nothing there. And so they, ha they have a huge process to go through, and we'll talk about some of that. He said, well, you're not burnt out, but he said, you're burned in. <laughs> I said, well, what's that mean? And that was his term. He said, well, you can operate, you can function, uh, but you, you have some of the signs of burnout at the same time. But you are able to go through the motions and you are able to function. You are able to, to sort of operate in life. You're paying the price at home. Your family's paying the price at home. But you're still able to, to run your life. So that's kind of burn in, he called it. Uh, in the book that we're looking at, I think he calls it low-grade burnout. Uh, so so uh, with that in mind, I want to give you 11, 11 signs of burnout. And you can find this on... Um, on the, the, there's a website for the book. It's called didn't see it coming book.com. And there's two free quizzes you can take. Again, it's didn't see it coming book.com. And you can take a, take a quiz for cynicism, which we talked about, and see how cynical you are, and a quiz for burnout. Now, on this burnout quiz, and these are right out of the quiz that I'm going to go through, if you're a yes for all 11 of these things, you likely, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't diagnose you, but you likely are in, in serious danger of a burnout. If not, you may be in one already. These are, these are kind of the, the no-brainers of burnout, all right? Um, number one, your, your passion fades. So, you know, maybe you used to like doing whatever it is you're doing. You used to have some reason to get up in the morning. You used to have some zeal, some passion, some driving force that, that motivated you. There is no more motivation. Zero. So you don't see any reason to do any of those things because you've got no more zeal, no more passion, no more driving force. Maybe for some of you say, well, I do what I do for my family. You know, if you're in burnout, even that isn't there. It's just kind of there's a numbness and your passion is just it's faded to nothing. Uh, number two, you no longer feel highs and lows. So n normally, emotionally, you should be able to feel up or down. There should be, well, how are you doing today? And it's kind of, you know, if you're being honest, you might say, well, I'm doing all right. You know, I, I talked to a gentleman before the service started and he said, you know what? I'm, I'm doing really good. Like life is simple and, you know, there's a positive air to it, right? So you, you know these things and you can feel when you're up, you can feel when you're down. When you're in burnout, you don't feel any of that. You don't feel highs. You don't feel lows. You just feel numb. Again, it's like the nine-volt battery on the tongue forever. <laughs> it doesn't come off. Little things make you disproportionately emotional. So you fly off the handle emotionally. You get emotionally unstable for silly little things. And you just snap in, in whatever way. I, I was so like that in that period of time. And I still have to watch out for getting uh, emotional for no reason. 
Um, number four, everybody drains you. So it's just people constantly are pulling from you all the time, all the time. You don't want to be around people because people are a pain. They're draining you all the time. They're pulling pieces of your life away from you all the time. Take, 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 take. There's nothing that you're receiving from anybody. You're drained all the time by people. Number five, this is why he puts a cynicism quiz on his, uh, on his website, Gary Newhop. You're becoming cynical. So remember, you start losing trust. You start losing hope. You start losing faith. That all kind of nests itself in with burnout. Nothing satisfies you. You used to like to eat. You used to like to be with your family. You used to like to do this or like to do that. None of it does anything for you anymore. It doesn't give you any pleasure. It doesn't give you any happiness. Nothing seems to satisfy you. You can't think straight. Your head's all cluttered. You can't, you can't focus. Uh, and number eight, your productivity is dropping. So you see maybe you're at the workplace, maybe you're in school, and it's just like everything is in a rapid decline. And you can't, you can't do what you have to do. You can't produce as much as you used to. You are self-medicating. So a lot of people in burnout, they're looking for something that's going to help them. And usually that something is destructive. So men, women, people get into things like that are going to cost them big time. They get into porn or, or, or they have affairs. They go and gamble. They go and do crazy things, get into alcohol, drugs, just all kinds of dangerous, high-risk things because they're looking for a way to self-medicate. You, you don't laugh anymore. You can't remember the last time you smiled and laughed and enjoyed something to a point where it actually made you laugh, you, you sleep and time off don't help. So the, the way that you sleep, the way that you take time off, it doesn't seem to do anything. You know, you take two weeks off, it didn't really do anything at all. It just kind of came and went. It didn't have any effect, okay? If you're yes to all of these things, that's a danger zone. There's something going on there that you need to take a look at for sure, for sure. You can read about it again on uh, uh, Carrie Newhoff's website, didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. You take the quiz there. And one for cynicism, you say, what's this got to do with the Bible? Very interesting, but can you find somebody in the Bible who experienced this? Yes, you can. And the example would surprise you. Uh, he is the example that most who do write about the subject from a biblical context use. And this is the, the late great prophet Elijah. Elijah of all people. I don't know if you know a little bit about Elijah, but this is old, old, old. This is before the, the, the civil war in Israel. So we're talking before 922 BC. So really, really old and you can read about his life in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We'll, we'll look at a little bit of that. But you see his, his, um, his ministry, if you will, uh, start in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. This is all in the Bible's Old Testament. And this is really old, old, old Testament, okay? Old, old narratives here, but really, really uh, insightful. And you, you're introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. 
and he is in a context where where um, I'm sorry the, the the nation has split already because uh, Israel's to the north and and Jerusalem to the south uh, but it's not long after that so he's in a time where he's dealing with the worst king of the northern kingdom in Israel the worst one his name is Ahab any of you know who his wife was starts with a J Jezebel all right uh, whose name is sometimes used in a strange way in church circles today. But in any case, Ahab was the king. And uh, Ahab, bad, bad king of Israel, like lots and lots of problems. He brought in all kinds of pagan worship, the likes of which some of the, his predecessors had done, but not full-blown like he did. I mean, really, really bad. He set up an altar to the false god Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria, which was the capital city of Israel at the time. He made an Asherah pole. Again, this is to a pagan god at the time. He did all kinds of things that were, whoa, 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 like way out of bounds, for what he was supposed to be, a king of Israel. He was ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And Elijah is the, is the minister, the pastor, the prophet, if you will, who is active in this time. And right away, chapter 17, verse 1, you see that he confronts this, this ungodly king, and he says there is going to be a drought in this land. And he's doing this to challenge him, and to say, you, you believe in all these gods of weather and so on? Well, I'm going to tell you there's going to be no rain in here over the next few years unless I say so. You talk about intense conflict, okay? He's, he's setting up quite the conflict there, and, uh, and it happens. And uh, the, there's a terrible drought that comes into the land, and you can see uh, some of his experience in chapter 17, and he runs into this widow, and there's all kinds of miraculous stuff that happens, a very personal story. But there is a drought that is in the land, and this man has for all intents and purposes, caused it in the name of God. And it's, it's, it's judgment, if you will, on the leadership of that time uh, in that area. And you, you can read chapter 17 yourself and see the experience and the ministry of Elijah start to take place. And then we see in chapter 18, after a long time in the third year, so no rain for three years, I'd like to do that prayer for snow for three years in Quebec. Yes, yeah. So after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, uh, Elijah, and he says, you go, you go to Ahab, you tell Ahab that there's going to be rain on the land. And this would have been a bad idea because Ahab's wife, Jezebel, was no angel herself. And Jezebel had uh, rather um, her entertainment was to execute the prophets of Israel. So anybody who was, if you will, a pastor or a minister, we would call them today, but the prophets, she would find them and she would execute them. And so you wanted to hide uh, from, from the king's wife, Jezebel. So, so Elijah is told, you're going to go and you're going to present yourself back to the king and you're going to tell him rain is coming. And so uh, Elijah goes to present himself to Ahab 
And he runs into a, a fellow prophet, Obadiah, and he says, uh, I've hidden people, I've hidden prophets in caves. And Ahab says to Obadiah, go through the land, all the springs and valleys, and, and maybe we can get some grass uh, to keep the horses alive and, you know, keep the livestock alive. He says, okay, okay, and you go, you go tell your master, you go tell Ahab that Elijah is here. A bad, bad idea. Um, so he says, well, I can't do that. Because if I do that, then Elijah's going to say to me, you have, you have either hidden, um, or Ahab's going to say, either you have hidden Elijah, or you haven't tell the, told the truth, or you're being deceptive in some shape or form. And Obadiah is saying, it's going to be very, very bad for me if I go and, and do what you're telling me to do with the king. In any case, they, there is a meeting that takes place, and Elijah does present himself to the king, and there is this confrontation, major, major confrontation uh, that he has with the king, and... Um, uh, the king says to him when he sees Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? In chapter 18 and verse uh, 16, 17, is that you? You're the one who makes trouble for Israel. I mean, wow, he, him and his wife are persecuting prophets and bringing in ungodliness in the land. And yet uh, Elijah is accused of being the one who's causing the trouble. And Elijah says, I haven't made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You're the ones who have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have brought in the Baals. Um, now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a major confrontation, and we're going to have a showdown to see who's the real God and who is the false God. We're going to have a showdown at the OK Corral. We're going to have a, a it's going to, it's, it's coming on now. And so there's this showdown that he organizes around Mount Carmel. And he says, you bring all of, the, all of your, your prophets of the false gods, Baal and Ashtorah. If you, if you count them, it's really 850. He says, you bring all of them to Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown. We're going to have, it's, it's, this is going to be the confrontation. And we're going to see whose God is the real God. And so Ahab is in and he says, okay, let's do it. And there's this big big public thing and the people are gathering around and Elijah says how long will you in the crowd waver between two opinions if the Lord is God will you follow him but if Baal is God you follow him make a decision enough of this nonsense we're going to settle it once and for all. major major confrontation and Elijah this is all he does. I mean, he's Mr. Confrontation, Mr. Battle. I mean, intense conflict. Like you've got, you've got, this is a conflict the likes of which, I mean, it's hard to describe. And he says, here, I'm going to make it real easy for you. Let's put some animals, let's lay some animals. Back in that time, that was the custom. We're going to present sacrifices to the gods. So you bring your animals here, and, and, you, and we're going to see which God responds. The God that responds by fire, fire from the sky, this is the real God. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people are like, yeah, I'm in. This is going to, this is, we're, we're getting it on now. We're having this big conflict. And, and so Elijah uh, puts together this whole scenario and he says, put the sacrifice down. And you know what? He says, let's dig a trench and, and let's, let's put it on the wood and let's put 
Let's put water on it. I mean, for, for when he's calling on God, that's what he says. For the other ones, he says, okay, well, why don't you call upon your God? And so the people go and they call upon Baal and they call upon Asherah and there's no answer and there's no fire from the sky on their sacrifice. And Elijah starts taunting them. And he says, where's your gods? How come your gods aren't responding? Are, is Baal sleeping? I mean, he literally says, that. he said, well, maybe he's sleeping and he's deep in thought. Maybe he's sending an email or a text. Like, is he busy? How come your God isn't responding? And he's taunting, taunting, taunting them. And they do all these things. They cut themselves and, and so that they try and, you know, elicit the power of these false gods. The fire come from the sky. Nothing, nothing works. Nothing works. And Elijah says, listen. Let's let's take the I'm going to call upon my God now, but I'm going to make it even more interesting. Let's put water on the sacrifice. Let's put water all over the place so that it's like doused in water. And I'm going to call upon my God and we'll see what happens. Wow. Confrontation, confrontation. And so he does that and he calls upon his uh, upon God, the God of Israel. He prays a real simple prayer and the fire comes down from the sky and it licks up everything. The water, the sacrifice, the trench, everything like this big, big, dramatic moment. And Elijah says, all right, we're going to do away with all of these false prophets and all of this, this, this terrible worship system. And he gathers all of these, these false prophets and they're all executed like in public. It is, you talk about a confrontation. You talk about, I mean, this guy, he's in it, he's in it. And it's, um, this is regarded as one of the most, one of the most powerful displays of the of the reality of God in the entire Old Testament. This is such a well-known story, especially in Judaism. I mean, and, and Elijah is regarded as this great hero of faith. And, and it goes on. He, he presents himself to 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 Ahab. He confronts Ahab after after winning this confrontation. And he says, I told you there was going to be rain in the land. And he says, you go and you eat and you drink for there's a sound of heavy rain, not a cloud in the sky. And then you see the little account there where Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel. He takes a servant with him and he bends down. He puts his head between his knees and he prays and he prays and he prays multiple times. He says, go and look up at the sky. What do you see? The servant comes back. He says, I don't see anything, not a cloud in the sky. He gets down, he prays, puts his head between his knees. Go, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? And he keeps doing it multiple times. Finally, he comes back. He says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand in the sky. And so he tell, Elijah goes to Ahab. He says, you better hurry because the sound of heavy rain is coming. And you better hightail it because there's a cloud the size of a man's hand. And sure enough, the rain comes. And, uh, and he says to Ahab, you better hitch up your chariot and go before the rain stops to Jezreel, presumably. Uh, because we see the sky grows black at the end of chapter 18 with clouds and wind and heavy rain. Ahab rides off to Jezreel and, and uh, um, Elijah runs. He sprints to Jezreel, which is 17 miles from Mount Carmel. And he runs, he does a marathon and he beats Ahab who's on horseback. 
It's impossible. It requires a supernatural thing. There's supernatural stuff all over the story. And Elijah, you know, he tucks his cloak under his belt and he runs ahead and he beats Ahab to Jezreel 17 miles, even though Ahab is on a horse, on horseback. Amazing story. You say, what's that got to do with burnout? I mean, he looks like he's on fire. He looks like he's just like he's he's killing it. Right. Well, not really. You see in chapter 19, where it really gets interesting, Ahab tells his wife, Jezebel, everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel, she's like, oh, he's, I'm going to get him. He's, he's, he's moving right into my trap. And she sends a messenger to Elijah. And here's the message. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like one of them. So what you did to all those false prophets, Elijah, I'm coming to get you. And by tomorrow, your life will be no more. You say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why, what's, why should he be scared? He ran the marathon, beat, beat, beat a guy on a horse. You know, he, he called down fire from heaven. What's he scared of this one lady for? Uh, but she ushers this threat. And you see in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which is 130 miles south of Jezreel, in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. He's asking God to take his own life. He's thinking about the end of his life. And he prays. He says, take my life, Lord. I have had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lied down under the tree and he fell asleep. And at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread. Wow, so nice, this angel. A cake of bread uh, 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 baked over hot coals mm -mm -mm. and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. He is exhausted. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. The journey's too far for you. And so he gets up, he eats and drinks again. And then strengthened by the food, it says he travels 40 days, 40 nights to Mount Horeb, which is 200 miles further south of Jezreel, the mountain of God. And there he went in a cave and spent the night. Say, I'm not so sure. Well, I, I don't see it. I don't see it. Well, uh, let me tell you what you can do from the ashes if you are in burnout and see if you see Elijah in a little bit of this. Number one, tell someone. So if you keep it secret that you're in this and you don't tell anyone and you don't take the cap off of it and expose it for what it is, you're in real trouble. Number one, tell someone. Number two, seek qualified help. Okay, I did. Seek help that is qualified. Like your, your spouse is not qualified to help you. Your friends probably aren't qualified. You may need a professional in your life to help you navigate through some of this. Um, if you need a reference, I do have one for you. Uh, Christian people who are counselors and psychologists are very hard to find these days in Quebec, especially in English. Uh, but I can give you one if you, if you need one. Number three, you keep leaning into God. 
because what people do in burnout is they think that God doesn't exist anymore, uh, that God has forsaken them, that their prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. They're completely numb, and they feel like God is the last thing from me right now. He must have left me. Number four, rest a lot. You see how exhausted Elijah is? He is like totally, totally wiped out. And he rests, but then he rests again, and then he rests again. It's not just that you rest, however. You need a combination of other things in your life besides just sleep. But here's the thing about sleep. Um, we, in, in this culture, we tend to cheat on sleep a lot. You do need, if you want to live a healthy life, you need about eight hours of sleep a night. Some of you, you're getting three or four. You're cheating. And what will happen is you get deprived of sleep so much that once you do start sleeping properly, you need to refill the bank. And you need to, you need to sleep like it's prolonged because you have cheated yourself. This is why God created the Sabbath. You ever hear of the Sabbath, right? So on the Sabbath, you're supposed to rest. If you slept the whole day, whatever your Sabbath day is, and all you did was sleep, good on you. You're, at least you're obeying the command of God. He wants you to rest on the Sabbath, okay, whatever your Sabbath may be. May be. But you've got to rest a lot. Number five, create a positive distraction. People who are in burnout, they don't, they don't have anywhere to deflect the pain. You need to, to, to do something like um, find something that you do enjoy, like a hobby or some kind of thing to distract. It's a distraction you're designing from the pain that you're experiencing. Number six, do only what you can. So maybe all you can do is brush your teeth today. I heard a story of a, of a minister who was in burnout. I actually heard the man speak before he was in burnout, young man. And he burnt out. His burnout was so bad, he could not even walk to the mailbox and check his mail. He was so afraid of crowds, and he was a very, very good public speaker. He was so afraid of crowds, he couldn't even go outside. He was that badly burnt out. Um, so maybe the only thing that you can do is, okay, today I'm going to brush my teeth. Today I'm going to cook a meal. Uh, do only what you can. Number seven, don't make any big decisions because people who are in burnout, sometimes they say, okay, now I'm going to quit my job or I'm going to move to another place or I'm going to get divorced or I'm going to get married or we're going to have a child. Like bad reasons for all. <laughs> you, you don't do those things because you're burnt out, okay? Don't make any big decisions because your decision-making capability is not good in those moments. Number eight, grieve your losses. So you've lost. You need to, like, experience some emotion over those losses. Uh, number nine, reopen your heart. And especially when you're dealing with people, people who are in burnout, they don't want to trust people anymore. You need to reopen your heart. And number 10, my psychologist taught me this, create winning conditions. No, I'm not talking about the next referendum. Remember that, winning conditions? Those of you who remember, winning conditions. So, so in your spiritual life, in your physical life, in your financial life, in your relational life, 
you need to be healthy in those areas. Those are winning conditions for your emotions. So, uh, you know, you're leaning into God. You're saying, well, God, you know, I, don't, I may not feel it, but I'm going to lean into you, and I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep engaging my spiritual life. I'm going to get physically healthy. People who are in burnout, they eat badly. They sleep badly. They don't look after themselves. They sacrifice themselves on the altar of whatever and as a result, they're burnt out. You need to look after your physical body. You need to look after your money. Sometimes people who are in burnout are so in debt, they can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. Your relationships, what are they like? I remember in my own case, like, I had to work on my marriage. I had to work on who I was in my home. I still work on those things. That's what you can do out of the ashes, some practical things to help you. Look at Elijah. I mean, God is so kind to him. He bakes him food. He gives him a place to rest. He gives him, he gives him that sense of comfort. He tells him, listen, you need your strength. And then he, then he heads over to, to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. And very interesting, the end of the story here, the, God speaks to Elijah. Again, he, he presses into God. And, and the reply is, listen, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, right? People who are burnt out feel isolated, and now they're trying to kill me too. And what does God say? He says, listen, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of God. The, God is about to pass by. Interesting, God is saying God is about to pass by. Could be a reference to the Trinity there, but anyway. So, so here's the story. And some of you, you've heard this before, but never in this context. You have a great and powerful wind that tears the mountains apart and shatters the rocks, right? But the, the scripture says the Lord was not in the wind. Okay, well, uh, after that, there was an earthquake, and, the, and, and with the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and the Lord was not in the fire. Elijah, you're used to drama, you're used to confrontation, you're used to all of this stuff, but I'm going to teach you, Elijah, that I speak in a still, small voice. After the fire came a gentle whisper. That's a whisper of hope for people who are in burnout. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the, of the cave. And the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says the same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord God, but they rejected your covenant. They broke your altars. They put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. And, and God says to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to anoint the next series of leaders, even the one who is going to succeed you, Elisha. And that's when he's told, you're going to anoint the next king, you're going to anoint the next king over Aram and over Israel, and you're also going to anoint your next successor, Elisha. Because I've got all of this under control, Elijah. And you, you're burned out like you've lived confrontation after confrontation and fire after fire and fight after fight. And you have served well and you have done well, but I'm so much bigger than you. And remember that I speak in the still small voice, Elijah. 
you've leaned into me and now you know and now you see who I am. You see, you understand my essence. You understand what I've done in your life. And there's another one coming and he's going to take your place and he's going to pick up the torch because you've served well, Elijah. You see? And so Elijah goes through all of these things only to learn at the end, wow, God is so faithful. And God has taken such good care of me. And God is on the case. I'm not the only one. God tells him, he says, listen, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees are not bowed to Baal. You think you're the only one? You're not. You think you're alone? You're not. So those of you, I don't know where, where you're at today. And I'd like the band to come and... Um,